Aaron's going to pass out some blank sheets of paper because I didn't do the fill in the blank. Sorry for you fill in the blank fans. Um, I will have notes up on the board, and I doubt you will be able to write everything on there. So look for the yellow. That's what you want, the yellow. Um, I did want to begin just really uh, quickly. First of all, thanking you for coming. Um, so this is the fourth of four, and uh, we've had a very faithful group of people being here, and it's been um, kind of an experiment. We didn't really know how well this would go, but um, it's been a joy to just get together, to eat together, and I wanted to make sure that you understood there's a lot of people who, who make it possible, uh, even for something just of this size, which is significant to happen. Um, and uh, Sarah Dixon and uh, Susie Schmidt and probably Susie's whole family um, are uh, the ones faithful, uh, making sure all the food is done. There's different people that maybe do different parts, but yeah, give them a, a hand. Um, there's other people, um, Heather Herzler and um, her trove of helpers, which was largely her family at times. Um, she, and uh, I don't know if she did it this week as well. I see them back there, but she may not personally done it. They put together little bags for the kids and, and make sure the kids have stuff to do. And um, her and Eli uh, just do a phenomenal job with just kids' roads in general. And they serve uh, faithfully and sacrificially often. So when you see them, make sure you thank them. Dick Lee, who uh, he's not here, but he, he comes in on Monday, sets us all up. Um, Dick comes in a lot and does a lot. And if Dick didn't come in, you would notice a lot uh, that's not done. And so um, he is just a faithful servant, and uh, we're very appreciative of, of him. And I don't know who else to thank. I'm sure there's others. But as uh, we're going to do this three times a year, uh, so the next one we won't do until after the road groups. So road groups will relaunch in January after Christmas. We'll go for um, an extended period of time, and then um, I think sometime at the end of March, I don't remember exactly when, we'll have um, another four-week deal. And so there'll be opportunities for people to serve and to, to do that and to help prepare their meals. And, um, and it's going to be a phenomenal uh, teaching time in March about uh, equipping us to actually use the Bible to pastor one another, and uh, it's going to be uh, really awesome. So... All that to say, there's opportunities to help. So uh, as if you've been blessed, I pray that you'll consider uh, being a blessing uh, next time in some way. So uh, last week, uh, we've been talking about four different kind of kinds of sanctification. And so last week, I uh, spoke on uh, positional sanctification. And you'll always know, there's a little hint, I was telling Jason this before we started, you'll always know when I'm dissatisfied with something I taught or preached because I'll blog a lot. Just watch for the blog. I won't blog for like a month, and then I'll just a train wreck of a sermon and be like, i got to say more because I screwed up. So um, there were three different blogs written called, I think, Sanctification 101, 102, 103. And so if you missed last week or you were there last week, you should read those because um, I tried to fill in the blanks of some of the things that you, know, you can't just cram into 45 minutes very well, uh, though I try. So um, this week, though, uh, we're going to talk about uh, the last um, one. And, th and this last kind of sanctification was the, the session that I thought would actually be probably the least exciting for me to teach. Um, I, I don't know why. I just thought, well, I'm just going to talk about you know, how it all works out in the end and it's good to go. But uh, as I pressed into to where, um, where it landed, there was some. I probably wrestled more with this one than I have, and I hope you will wrestle with it too. Because I want you to know that as I study and, and, and as I learn, 
that's what I'm doing. I'm studying and learning and, and growing and changing, and I don't have it all figured out. I'll, I'll be real honest with you. And so um, I want you to be uh, comfortable with wrestling with some of the stuff I say tonight and not, as I say it, go, well, there is the definitive statement on this truth, and Sam knows everything, and I'm going to quote him and not read my Bible. And eh, wrong, okay? So please uh, study and, and learn and, and discuss, as brothers and sisters, uh, God's Word, and let's wrestle over this stuff. So uh, where we've been, um, let's see if this works, all right. So this idea of sanctification, again, um, I'm using it as a very comprehensive term uh, to describe um, a process, for lack of a better word, of salvation. That salvation isn't just in a moment. That salvation uh, is a larger process that I think can be described in these different kinds or through these different kinds of sanctification. It's something that was determined decisively in the past, before the world was ever created, God decided to save a people. We experience it partially in the present. Okay? I say partially because I think it's okay to say that our salvation in some sense is not complete until we're with Jesus. And so we experience it now. We experience an awakening now, but it's still partial. It's a now and it's a not yet. And it will be completed in the future. So when we describe this process of sanctification, we're describing the whole process of salvation. And I'm trying to give terms to that. They're not the only terms, but the terms we're using because it's alliteration, I like P's. Okay? So preparatory sanctification is often referred to commonly as predestination. Okay? So it's this idea that God did something before. Now, predestination doesn't... You know, there's, that's a big term. There's a lot attached to that, but that's generally the term we're talking about, the idea we're talking about. Positional sanctification is generally understood as justification. And when I taught that, I explained there's a lot more than just justification happening, but when the Bible talks about uh, our position in Christ, it most commonly uses the word justification and assumes or implies the other things, expiation, imputation, propitiation, all these other pieces of what it took to put us in Christ. And then last week, progressive sanctification. And as we talk about it, that is probably the one that's most often referred to as just sanctification, as just describing this, this growth or this maturity in Christ, as distinct from our position in Christ. There is there's a growth and, and a maturity that occurs. So... The third, or the, the one we're talking about tonight, is called prospective sanctification. Some would call it future sanctification. Um, and it is this completion, if you will, of our salvation. It is when we, or what we are in position in Christ right now, for those who have trusted as in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that is when we, uh, how we practice and how we live, those two are bought together. And we become, basically, in practice, what we are in position. We become perfected, if you will. Um, so prospective sanctification delivers us from the presence of sin. The preparatory sanctification almost prepared us to be saved and rescued from sin. Right? And then you have uh, positional sanctification who, that delivers us from the power of sin, the penalty of sin. 
Progressive sanctification is being delivered from the influence of that indwelling sin that remains. And this one is uh, the presence of sin is gone completely. And it's often referred to as glorification. Okay? So those are the, the, the way we're going. So we're talking about this idea of, of final perfection, this idea that uh, we are glorified and, and, and the remainder of sin is removed from us and we have no um, you know, temptation, we have no struggles, we have no brokenness in our body. It's, it's, we're, we're done. Sin is gone. Now, that is because we are fully and completely in the presence of God. Now, John Piper said something really interesting. This is where I began to stir, began to think about this idea of glorification. He had said that even though our election, our election is unconditional. By unconditional, that means that God does not look at us and go, well, you're pretty clean, or you're pretty knowledgeable, or whatever. He elects according to his own purposes, not based on any conditions or merits or anything in us, but on his will. Purposes of his will, which are a mystery. So they're unconditional in that sense. We don't do anything to be saved. God does everything. But John Piper said that even though election is unconditional, glorification is conditional. And you go, what? That sounds really wrong, or strange at least. He must mean something else. And so as you begin to um, study it, you'll, you'll understand. And I think um, Kevin DeYoung, I, I just quoted him because I thought he did a good job of ex- kind of explaining what John Piper meant. Because when John Piper said this, people were like, wait, hold on. And, and what I've said is like, you say a statement like that out of context, without definition of the terms you're using, it can be um, more troubling and helpful. And so he said, the word conditional does not have to carry the sense of merit or uncertainty. A condition is simply a requirement that must be met or a state of affairs that must come to pass if a certain event or outcome is to be realized. So to say something is conditional is to say nothing about how the condition is met or whether there is any doubt the condition will be fulfilled. He also said, I think there's a little piece in here that I didn't write up there. I can see how the word conditional throws people off, but we must affirm this from Scripture, that without certain evidence made manifest in our lives, we will not be glorified. That's what we're talking about tonight. It could be said that um, the glorification is conditional on our positional sanctification. In other words, that those who are in Christ will be glorified. That's the condition of being with the Lord and in His presence completely. And that condition should be made manifest in our lives. There should be some sense of evidence that we are in Christ which proves that we will be glorified. This is not evidence for other people. This is evidence for ourselves. This is evidence that should bring some sense of certainty and assurance in my salvation. And this is not evidence. This is necessarily a list of to-dos. It is 
largely some heart attitudes that lead to certain behaviors. Now, there's some verses I want to show you that, that speak to this, and um, I think they'll be helpful. They might be a little disturbing, but you can wrestle them, and it'll be fun. All right. First one, Hebrews 12.14. And Hebrews 12.14 says, strive, okay? Important word, strive. Strive for peace. So if I tell you to strive for peace, that's not a, a mental thing, although it includes probably some mental things. It's active. It's effort. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So this can't be talking about our positional sanctification because we don't work for that. This is talking about some kind of holiness that we can obtain, that we can experience, that we can strive for. And if there is no striving for that, in some sense, we will not be in the presence of the Lord. Now, again, wrestle with the Scripture. There's a couple others I want us to wrestle with. 1 Corinthians 6, 8-10, through 10, writing to the church, says, be you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. You know why I put that in yellow? Because Paul's implying that we could deceive ourselves into believing that we can inherit the kingdom of God with some forms of unrighteousness. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is describing not things I have done, but active practicing behaviors you are doing. It's important. Because anyone who has been an idolater in this room would be out of luck, which I think includes us all. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit. Something has happened. Okay? A third scripture. You should write down the references so you can look at them later. It says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Again, writing to the church, writing to believers, describing their behavior when they were not in Christ. They are in Christ now. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if, indeed, you continue in the faith. So in some sense, if you do not continue in the faith, you will not be presented holy and blameless before Jesus. You go, man, that's, that's, that, that's disturbing. Yes, it is. Sobering. Challenging. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which Paul, I, Paul, became a minister. So what is my point in 
telling you those verses. My point is to say, or to emphasize this idea that glorification being conditioned upon your election. And your election and the condition of being in Christ has some sense of evidence. Some sense of uh, proof, if you will, that you are in Christ. And we'll go into this further. Now, as we focus, and I think our focus always must begin and, and always must return and always must be revisited to who we are in Christ. We always must be revisiting our positional sanctification. What God has done, because you can get very much captivated by what you're doing or not doing. And when you read verses like that, that's where your heart goes, right? I ain't going to make it, right? Or, boom, got this one, right? Pride or despair is where we go. But the truth is that we cannot, Scripture makes it clear, we cannot profess faith in Jesus and then willfully live like the devil. Or, in Jesus' own words, willfully live like the wicked servant or the lukewarm Christian, which is a little touchy, right? You realize lukewarm was spit out of Jesus' mouth. When we hear lukewarm, it's like, I'm not a good enough Christian. I'm not a hot enough Christian. What is it? I'm just telling you what Jesus said. He's spitting out lukewarm. He also, in Matthew, condemns and throws into hell the wicked servant who was lazy. This is Jesus' words. Now, we cannot profess faith in Jesus and then live like the devil. This is not because God demands some set of holiness points for us to achieve before we can enter heaven. Okay? That's not what I'm saying. We are justified by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Just so I make sure it's on the podcast clearly. We are justified by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. But the same grace that grants us faith will invariably be the grace that changes us by and keeps us in God's love. It's the same grace. Grace has its effect. As Paul said at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, grace was not wasted on him. It had its effect. And to ignore the second part of what I said, right, that yes, grace grants us faith, but grace also causes us to change If we say or ignore that second phrase, that's proof that the first phrase never happened in our lives. If grace is not changing us, grace never saved us. Now there are two dangers, and we talked about this as elders the other night, there's two dangers that we walk as pastors and as teachers, and it's precarious There's a danger in calling people to a pursuit of holiness. 
And the danger is probably obvious to a lot of us who have been in maybe legalistic churches. And that's just it. It's legalism. It's this idea that my justification is actually based off of how well I do or don't do. And so we've said that before. As you call people to holiness and you call people to pursue righteousness, you call people to godliness and to good works, there's that danger that they can get into a legalistic mindset and be despairing because they're not doing that. Or prideful and condescending because they are. So I recognize that danger, but there is an equal danger. And the equal danger is not calling people to pursue holiness. And that's just as dangerous. That leads to possibly license, where people use their freedom in Christ and their salvation in Christ as a covering for sin. But it also can lead, as Peter said, if you remember last week in 2 Peter chapter 1, the passage I read where he says, you will be ineffective and unfruitful. Dare I say, if you do not warn people and call them to pursue holiness, you can give them a false sense of security. By them, I mean non-believers. So we need to call people to a pursuit of holiness. We go, what is, what is holiness? Like, what, what is that? And I think that's a good question. Even though holiness uh, relates to moral purity, right? We talked this in the very first session. We talked about what is sanctification. There was two parts of it. And one part, when we talk about it in terms of progressive sanctification, we're always talking about moral purity in a lot of times, more goodness in us, more self-control, more patience, more love, like those things, more honesty. But sanctification begins with this idea that being sanctified or being holy is being set apart and belonging to God. That's where it starts. And if we know the love of Christ, right? If, if we have experienced the love of Christ, if we know the love of Christ, 1 Corinthians, or sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. What does it say? Because we know the love of Christ, love of Christ controls us. Not the love of Christ ought control us. If we know the love of Christ, the love of Christ controls us. Philippians 2 says, if we believe in Christ, we have the mind of Christ. The reason we are righteous, the reason I am holy and blameless in my soul before Jesus right now is because He died for us. But the reason we can pursue holiness is because Jesus lives in us. Okay, so we can pursue it. It's not by our energies. It's not by our efforts. It's not by our desires. It's Him. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and delivered Himself up for me. It's Jesus living through us. So if I am saved through His death and resurrection, I am empowered through His life in me by His Spirit. Our pursuit of holiness is not primarily about moral purity, but I believe it's primarily about a union with God in Christ and sharing in a deepening way in His holiness. And that 
secondarily leads to a life of grateful service to God for the benefit of others. So when we're talking about holiness, we are talking about beginning by pressing into the holiness that is ours in Christ. But it does bleed out, should bleed out, will bleed out. And Peter, in that verse that I shared with you last week in 2 Peter 1, I don't think I will put it on the board, he does a very good job of kind of describing a pursuit of holiness. Like what kinds of things are we pursuing? And if you remember... He commends us to make every effort, every effort to add to your faith. He says virtue, he has seven things. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And if you have your Bible, turn to that passage. And I want to show you something that I think I pointed out last week. If we consider the warnings, um, bad pen. He says at the very beginning, second period, second period, second Peter, chapter one, verse three, and then following all the way, uh, well, quite a ways. He says, "His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence." And he continues on, talks about his granted, and says, for this very reason. So, why we do, it is based off of who we are, that he has given us all things for godliness. And for this reason, I add to my faith these things that he lists here. And then he gives some warnings. He says, first, the reason we should do this is we've been saved. But then he says, if we do not do this, what happens? If we do not pursue holiness, if we do not add to our faith the things that he encourages us to, we'll be ineffective and unfruitful. Okay? Ineffective, which is certainly a big broad term. Unfruitful, which again is a pretty broad term. This is Second Peter chapter one, verse three, all the way through twelve-ish or so, eleven. And then he also says that if we do do it, right? If these qualities, verse eight, are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being affected on fruitful. Sorry, the next one. For whoever lacks his qualities is so nearsighted he's blind, having forgotten he was cleansed from sins. Therefore, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Talked about that last week. For if you practice these qualities, you will what? Never fall. That would be great. And the idea of if you practice is a disposition, right? 
It is active. It is, it is a pursuit. It is not 100% perfect success, but it is a pursuit. If you do these things, not only will we not fall, but it also says, in this way there will be richly provided to you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, is it fair to say that if we do and practice these things, if we pursue these things, if, if that is the disposition and the desire of our heart to pursue holiness, we'll prepare. That's a, that's a sign, if you will, of our, of our election, a condition of our heart. Is it fair to say that if we do not, not only will be ineffective, unfruitful, it's possible there will not be an entrance into the kingdom for us. So the question becomes like, well, what, what motivates this pursuit of holiness? Well, I think it should be three things. I think I put them up here. And I'll explain this. Now, many people want to just say it's number one. That the reason I pursued holiness is what Peter says the very first reason, right? I'm saved. I'm grateful for the love of God that is the only motivation for me to do good things because of all the good that God has done for me, which is a fantastic motivation. But it cannot be the only motivation. What I mean by that, there are certain promises God makes as well. And there are certain warnings God gives us. I'll give you an example. So let's just take marriage. Okay? So, Ephesians 5 is a very famous marriage chapter. It's the chapter that says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church, right? So, first and foremost, our first motivation to love our wives, which is a righteous thing, a holy thing, a good thing, it's founded on the truth of how Jesus has loved us. That's a good motivation. If you don't understand the love that Christ has given you as His bride, the church, you don't understand love. But it also says other things about loving your wife. It gives us a promise later in Ephesians 5. It says that as you love your wife, you are loving yourself. Right? You are experiencing blessing. And any man that has loved his wife well has a lovely wife who loves him well. Okay? It's, it's a natural outworking of that Christ-like love. It's a blessing. So there's a promise. And there's other promises. Jesus talks about rewards. And I was going to go into a long thing. We could talk about heavenly rewards. And people say, we shouldn't be motivated by heavenly rewards. Paul was, so I think it's okay to be. But there's an earthly reward to be had right now. A promise that says, if you love your wife as I have loved you, you will be blessed. But there's also some warnings. I don't know if you've read in... 1 Peter 3.7, gentlemen, in context of marriage, likewise husbands live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That sounds like a warning to me. That if you don't pursue loving your wife and caring for your wife in a way 
that is honoring to God that He would expect you run the risk of hindering your communion with the Lord. That's called a warning. And so our pursuit of holiness has all three of these things. There's there's a motivation of, my gosh, I have been so forgiven, so I'm going to forgive. I talked about that on Sunday, right? This idea of gratitude is probably our root problem in all these things. I am not patient because I don't recognize and am grateful for the patience God has shown me. But there are other motivations. And the other motivations are very powerful and important to talk about. God does promise joy, success, if we walk in His ways. He promises contentment even in the midst of storms if we walk in His ways. He warns, not just against the consequences of sin. If you do that, it's going to hurt. But He also warns of punishments that will come. So there are motivations to pursue righteousness and holiness that we need to talk about and call people to from a foundation of the Gospel. And when we talk about, again, this idea of glorification being conditional, this idea of there needs to be some evidence that you're actually saved, some pursuit, we understand that, you know what? It can be faked. That only God truly sees the heart. And you only have one heart really to worry about. And that's your own. Yes, you're shepherding hearts if you're married and you have children. But truly, it's your heart that needs to be tested. Another passage that I think is powerful uh, as a warning um, is in Hebrews 10. And I think I put it up there. It's pretty long, so I'll put it in two chunks. Hebrews, if you just read through Hebrews, some of the warnings it gives to those who um, have too much confidence in their pedigree, if you're Jewish, and not enough confidence in the fruit of their life. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places of the blood, by the blood of Jesus... That's where it starts. By the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest, right? Here's some motivations. Jesus has done it all. He's made it possible. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast, active, the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works. Knowing this, knowing what we know about Jesus, let's move. Let's love. You should love. You should do good works. Like what? You should bless others. You should love your kids. You should exercise more self-control. You should be a fantastic employee. Like Those are good works that we should stir one another on toward. Not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then it gives warnings. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, and you can sin 
through active hatred, and you can also sin through indifference and apathy. Right? It's not just hatred and violence. It's not just sins you commit. It's sins that you omit, sins you don't do. Sins you don't do. Ways you love that you should have, I should say. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's a sobering verse. But a fearful expectation of judgment. He's talking to professed believers. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Basically, like, it's going to be a lot worse. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. In some circles, verse 31 is an unloving thing to say. And I'm sure you can say that in an unloving way. But it is important for us to call each other toward good works and to remind each other that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God whom you profane by professing that you believe and not living as, you, as if you do. Hard words, I know. I got to struggle with it all week. Lucky you. So what do you do? Well, here's the big question of the night. How do I know if I'm a Christian? Is there some formula somewhere? Check box? Are you going to tell me the seven things? What is it? Paul, at the very end of his second letter to a very messed up church, says something that we don't read enough. It says, examine yourselves in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, and 6. Now, he doesn't say examine everybody else, although that's our tendency. In fact, it doesn't say examine anyone else. So examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. I wonder what that means. Right? I wonder what Paul means. He means examine yourself to see if you're a Christian. That's what it means. We should be asking ourselves that question. This is not trying to build like some kind of worry in us, but some honesty. He said, test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. How do I know if Christ is in me? That's what we're testing. I'm going to give you a bone here. I don't know if this is, this is from the mind of Sam, not necessarily the mind of God. I'm trying to figure out what a test looks like. Right? I was an English teacher. I'd let kids... Uh, write their own tests at times for uh, different units. Dumbest thing you could ever do as a teacher, and that's because everyone always makes a test that they can pass. Right? They make it easy. I think it's important to test ourselves. I think there's three different ways to test ourselves. One way is to test yourself by the Spirit. And you're supposed to test the spirits in 1 John 4.1 to see whether they're true. There's a spirit 
that cries out, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. There's a spirit that cries out and testifies with God's spirit, Abba, Father, I'm your kid. There is a spirit, and I don't want to say it's all emotional. Right? So it's like, well, I feel it or not. Jesus loves me this, I know, for the Bible tells me so. So it's not just all emotion. But there is a sense of like, do I have affection for God? Do I have a disposition of affection toward Jesus? That's a, maybe an easy test to pass or fail. Because people can confess Jesus and not believe. That's where we're going. Like They can profess to believe and not, so we have to be careful. Also, test yourself by the Word. What does that mean? You open up the Bible and you read books of the Bible like, oh, I don't know, 1 John. And it will tell you very quickly whether or not you're a Christian. Because it makes some very direct statements about the affection and love you have for God's commands about the affection and love you have for God's people, about your disposition towards sin. He's like very plain and simple and direct about it. Go to read 1 John. There's a reason why when we did a study on 1 John, we called it assurance. But I think you open the Bible and you let the Bible test you. And it not just tests the outworking or the stuff you do, but also tests the motivations for why you do it. When you expose yourself to God's Word, it, it, it cuts deep, right? Book of Hebrews says it slices and dices all the way down. Can't hide what you really believe when you open God's Word. But I think the one we avoid the most is testing yourself by the people of God. Allowing other people into our lives and being transparent before them and letting them maybe challenge us a little bit. Ask some hard questions. Being willing to ask the hard question of someone else. Like we don't live in community, in, in tight-knit communities, because we're afraid that we'll be known. The cattle will be out of the bag, right? You'll know my dirt. That's what we need. We need to live in the light. We need one another to admonish us at times and to encourage us at times and to say, dude, that's, that's ungodly. I need that. There has to be, like our elders, they're probably the guys that I'm going to be probably most transparent with. They've got to be able to call me on my life. On how I love my wife, on how I love my kids, on how I spend my money. Oh, that's my business. Well, it ought not be. There's got to be a community of brothers and sisters in Christ where you can lay yourself bare and make and ask you the hard questions to test your convictions and to test your faith. We need that. That is how we are built up. That is how we are refined. That, in many ways, is how we avoid self-deception. That's what I think is probably most important. We can be self-deceived in our salvation. Which is scary. There's a tension between... Um, 100% assurance and, and overconfidence, right? There's like, there's this tension there. I want assurance, but I don't want to be like super overconfident. Oh, I got this, no problem. And that, this kind of test or examination, again, we were discussing um, 
Monday night. It's not intended to create unnecessary uncertainty in your life. But it is intended to create some necessary certainty or some necessary uncertainty. To ask ourselves some hard questions and be honest about things like the parable of the soils. If you read the parable of the soils that Jesus um, lays out in Matthew chapter 13, he says, look, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. This is what's been on the path. And for what is sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word immediately, receives it with joy, but yet has no root. So he endures for a little while, but then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what is sown among thorns, is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the word and deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And for what is grown in good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. And he indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, another thirty. And I've heard the parable of the soils taught so incredibly poorly. You know, you got to make sure you're good soil. That's not what Jesus says. He's describing what is. He is describing the kinds of soils there are, not the kind of soils we should strive to be. Now, I'm sure you can have good principles from what you do with your soil and how you fertilize. Sure. But what Jesus is saying, like, here's what happens when the word goes out, and there are people that go, woohoo, Jesus, and fall away very quickly. In fact, there are more that receive the word and it dies out and nothing produces anything than there are that do. The longer I'm a pastor, and I don't say this as a commentary on anybody that I've interacted with, but the longer I'm a pastor, the fewer Christians I believe that there are. Which is scary. We have this idea of uh, perseverance of the saints. In Reformed circles, we talk about this idea. And um, the question that we um, maybe should ask is, what does it actually mean? What does it mean to persevere? Because that's what we're talking about. Um, Perseverance of the saints is this teaching, and we hold to this. That the work of God, the Holy Spirit, will never cease in the Christian. And that all who are truly regenerated or made alive will never stop believing. And they will never lose their salvation. And they will persevere to the end because God has promised to never leave or forsake them. That's what we mean. It's not just once saved, always saved. It is this idea that those who are saved, those that are made new, those that are born again, those that are placed in Christ, by Christ, for Christ, will never cease to have the Holy Spirit completing the work that He started in them. That they will never stop believing and trusting. That they will never lose their salvation. That the chain of of salvation, if you will, that is presented in Romans 8.28, it ends with those words. 
those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's not he hoped to glorify. Those he justified, he glorified. Those who are glorified is their glorification, if will, is conditional on the fact they're justified. And we need to test ourselves to see if that is actually true about us, whether we are in Christ. What perseverance does not mean, though, should bring us some comfort. It does not mean that everyone, well, this won't be the comfortable one, professes to be a Christian, will persevere. Because there can be those who are false converts and not truly regenerated. In other words, there are people who appear to be saved who are not even pastors of churches. Mark made that point when we were talking on Monday. Do you realize that? There are pastors that lead churches that are not Christians. There are pastors that preach Jesus who are not Christians. How is that possible? The doctrine does not mean that everyone who professes to be a Christian will persevere because there can be those who are false converts and not truly saved. But I also will say that perseverance of the saints does not mean this is the comforting one. That those who are truly saved will not backslide or have strong doubts about their faith. In other words, it doesn't mean that those who are truly saved don't mess up. I even say they don't mess up a lot. Or mess up in the worst ways. It's to say, in the end, they will persevere and they will not lose faith in Christ. But the Spirit's not done with them. So we're not talking about, well, there's people that pursue morality and it's an upward track forever. There are valleys. There are screw-ups. It means, ultimately, they will remain in the faith because it is God who is keeping them and not themselves. When we talk about losing one's salvation, we have to be careful how we say that because we never want to state that we obtained our salvation. If Jesus is the one that saves, the question is, can Jesus lose anybody? And he says, more than once. I can lose no one. Now, when we talk about false converts, people who profess to believe, um, there are many false converts who do awesome things. There are false converts who do things in the name of Jesus. There are things that they do that are miraculous. You've got pastors, um, potentially who are not saved, leading, leading huge churches. You go, oh, look what they're doing for the Lord. But let's not forget a verse I preached. It's, I think, scariest verses in the Bible. Matthew 7. Matthew 7, 21. I'll write it down so you can write it down. I won't write down the whole verse, but I'll write down the reference. Because you'll know it. I guarantee you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, speaking of the last day, 
many, not a few, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? They're referencing things that actually they have done. So they did actually prophesy and preach in his name. They cast out demons successfully in his name. They did mighty works in his name. But what does Jesus say? I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. When I preached this, I remember suggesting that you could really see their heart in this because you recognize that those who are coming before Jesus are only talking about themselves and everything they've done. That probably is where the problem started. But there are also, um, so there are false converts that basically look religious. And then there are false converts that look very irreligious. These are the ones that John writes about in 1 John. He says, children, it's the last hour. This is 1 John 2, 18 to 20. He says, the last hour, as you've heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, speaking about professed believers, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. That's not just the idea, well, someone left the church, he must not be a Christian. No, that's someone leaving the faith. And granted, there are those who have, for a time, walked away from the faith and in time proven that, you know what, they just had a, a, a moment of rebellion and God grabbed them by the back of the collar and either saved them for the first time or caused their his son to repent. We can't see the heart. But we need to test ourselves to see if that's us. There are those who look religious and are not Christians. There are those who are irreligious and are not Christians and those perhaps who look irreligious that are. All perseverance of the saints says is that those who are truly saved will persevere in the end. John 10, Jesus said it this way, I give them eternal life, verse 28 29, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me, who is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I had a well-intended but foolishly wrong professor at college tell me, well, no one can snatch them out, but you can walk out. And I said, that is wrong. You're not even strong enough to snatch yourself out of Jesus' hand, which should bring us some comfort. So, in closing, plainly stated, those who are truly and genuinely saved will make a gospel-motivated effort 
empowered by the Spirit, founded on faith to pursue righteousness. They will do all the things that Paul says in Ephesians 4. They will put off the old self and make an effort to put on the new. They will do what Paul says to do in Romans 8, put to death the deeds of the body, which was that mortification. They will make an effort to put on the character qualities of Christ that he teaches us in Colossians 3. They will abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul, what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. They will make every effort to add and supplement their faith to make their election sure. As Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1. That does not mean that they will do everything super successfully. That does not mean that they won't fall flat on their face and fail and have to repent and say, Jesus, thank you for saving me because I am really bad at making this effort. It is to say that there will be a heart disposition and a desire and the power to do it and that the Spirit is never done working and will bring the work that He's begun to completion. Everything was done by Jesus, not so we could do nothing, but so that we would have the desire and the power to do something by His Spirit. I think that last phrase is really important. Effort for the purpose of meriting favor is condemned. It is condemned by the Bible, and rightfully so. But effort that is driven by the gospel is commanded. It's commanded. An old Puritan um, saying is that for every look at your sanctification, right? Your growth and your maturity in Christ. For every time you look at your sanctification, take two looks at your justification. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember that you are a child adopted, forgiven, redeemed by Christ. Work hard. And as you fail or as it goes slow, look back at your justification. And Jerry Bridges, I'll close with his quote. It's one I've remembered for so long, and I think it's in that Who Am I book. I first read it, I think, in Transforming Grace. He said this, Never forget that your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And never forget that your good days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. That's where we sit in God's grace. And so I'm hopeful that um, there are large volumes written on this stuff, long sermons written on, or preached on this stuff. This is just a glimpse. And you have the notes and stuff online. My hope is that this whole equip experience will inspire you in two ways. One, to love your family better, and I mean family of families here, to know each other, be known. But secondly, to know your Bible to wrestle with some of these scriptures, to, to dig into them, to discuss them, to learn and to grow and together stir one, and on, one another on toward good works and greater union with Christ. Okay? I'm going to pray, and I'll uh, be up here to answer questions if you have any. I'll post my notes that I use online. I think there's a couple things I may have left out, um, so sometimes that's helpful. 
Thank you for being here, and uh, I'm going to pray, and we will be done right on time, which is amazing. Father, we thank you for um, all that you've done to make it possible to be in your presence again. Lord, we are rebellious, and we are weak, and we fall well short of your glory, but you pursue us, and you make us alive who are dead through faith in your Son. So thank you for sending your Son to die in our place and to live in our place. To pay the penalty that we deserve, Lord, for our disobedience and to live a perfect life of obedience and give it to us. Remind us of who we are in Christ, Lord. Let our minds be drawn there first and let that inspire us, but also let us be inspired to pursue holiness by the promises of holiness the joy that you promised, the reward that you promised, the blessing that you promised through obedience. Jesus says that your joy will be made complete through obedience. Let us believe that. And let us also be sober by your warnings that disobedience does lead to death, that disobedience does lead to destruction, that disobedience does lead us to be ineffective and unfruitful in this life. I pray for our church, Lord, that when all is said and done, through all of this equipped and studying and time, we will learn and grow in our love for you and our love for one another and our love for your word. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Go in grace. Thank you very much. If you could pick up your garbage, that would be awesome, but thank you for being here.